Guts and Meyer must have known, how could they not, that almost all the Jewish men in Serbia had already been shot. How this had happened they didn't know, or how the operation had been organized, but truth be told, they didn't care. I, however, did know how it happened. Almost all the men in my mother's and father's families were killed in the autumn of 1941. Assembled earlier in various collection camps and jails, they were taken off to be shot in smaller and larger groups, often in retaliation for German soldiers who had been killed. Buried at various execution grounds around Belgrade, they created a tangled web of death that I never managed to disentangle completely. As for the ones at the fairgrounds, at least we know the precise route, over the Sava River Bridge, through Belgrade to Yainzi. I know the route. They didn't. While they were in the line behind the truck, they believed that they were headed for a new camp in Romania, or maybe Poland. Hadn't that been what the camp commander told them? A man named Undorfer, who had even made the effort to produce rules for the new camp and distribute them to the members of the Jewish administration. Quite by chance, though maybe not, Untersturmführer Andorfer, before he dedicated himself professionally to the SS, worked as the business manager of a hotel. The conditions for accommodation in that hotel in Zelden am Ötztal were far better than they were at the fairgrounds camp, where broken windows were boarded up, cracks yawned in the walls, and the roofs leaked. No wonder, then, that at first the prisoners in the camp volunteered for the transport, to get as far away from that hellhole as possible. They were humiliated not only by the camp's subhuman conditions, but by its full exposure to Belgrade, which watched them from across the river. The pain is more acute when what has been lost hovers constantly before your eyes. Silence can kill. Order is essential in all things, thought Götz and Meyer, as they checked in with Standartenführer Emanuel Schäfer, head of the German police, otherwise a doctor of law. Schäfer informed Camp Commander Andorfer of everything, and he, in turn, told everything to his deputy, Edgar Enger. Before the war, or rather up to the moment he was drafted, Enger had worked as a tour guide. So it was that the operation for the final solution of the Jewish question in Serbia was in fact put into practice by a former hotelier and a former tour guide. Quite ironic, though hardly absurd if one keeps in mind the affinities between the two lines of work, using the same vocabulary. Accommodation, transport, daily and weekly menus, the ordering of food supplies, hygiene, Guests' complaints. Perhaps one cannot speak of the camp prisoners as guests. Perhaps one shouldn't. And their complaints were hardly taken seriously. In formal terms, the German occupying forces were the host. But the purchasing of food was financed from funds acquired by selling looted Jewish property. The camp prisoners paid for their own accommodation a total of 26,900,000 dinars was paid to the municipality of Belgrade for food, 
the calorific value of which contributed to the great speed with which the prisoners lost weight, ultimately making Goetz and Meyer's job all the easier. The German occupying forces demonstrated the same efficiency when, in mid-October 1941, they decided to shoot the remaining 4,000 Jewish men, excepting from that number approximately 300, whom they designated to maintain order among the women, children, and elderly people in the Jewish ghetto, which was supposed to be in the gypsy quarter of Belgrade, but which was never built. Instead of a ghetto, they opened the fairgrounds camp. Here their efficiency came to the fore once more. They used pavilions that had since 1937 been the site of international fairs. So the Turkish pavilion was, with startling aptness, where they set up the baths and later the mortuary. The connection between a bath and a mortuary is not entirely obvious unless one sees the act of death no matter how ugly it may be, as a transition to a state of greater purity. The camp command quarters settled into a little building near the gate that used to house the fairgrounds administration. The Jewish administration of the camp was located at the central tower. Most of the prisoners lived in the third pavilion, the largest of them all, where all the partitions had been torn down. The surface area of this pavilion was about 5,000 square metres, which means that each person, and as many as 5,000 souls were there, had the living space of a single square metre. The mortality rate was rather high among the prisoners even before Götz and Meyer got to Belgrade, so sometimes they had more space, which the prisoners mostly weren't aware of, and therefore they weren't able to make use of it. One shouldn't hold that against the prisoners, because they were glad if they could move about at all. That was precisely why they were so delighted when Goetz, Meyer, and their truck appeared at the gate to the camp. If nothing else, they'd be going somewhere where there would be more food, and where they could stretch their legs properly. At such moments, life is measured in small increments. The length of one's bed, for instance or woolen socks. It was certainly no better at the first pavilion where the Jews brought in later were accommodated, although I don't know precisely how large a surface area it covered. A kitchen was later opened in the fourth pavilion. At first, food was delivered by car from Belgrade. The Jewish men, the ones who were spared execution by firing squad, lived in the fifth pavilion. The second pavilion was set aside for gypsies, and afterward they made camp workshops there, a locksmith's, cobbler's, tailor's, and carpenter's shop. The camp had its own hospital and pharmacy, fifty cots or so at the pavilion of the Nicolas Spasic Foundation. A real little city unto itself, make no mistake. Such a shame they had to squat out in the open to relieve themselves— if there had been some tidier solution for this, the fairgrounds might have become a model Nazi camp. This made Commander Andorfer even more unhappy. He was a young man, in his thirties, 
brimming with energy, thrilled to be alive in the triumphal time of the German Reich. And if there was a war going on around him, and there was, he wanted to be part of it. His petitions were not heard, and he remained in this position until late April 1942, when the Jewish question in Serbia was almost completely solved, and Goetz and Meyer began having dreams about going home. Goetz, in particular, or maybe it was Meyer, had vivid dreams, so much so that he woke up at night in a sweat if he had dreamed something unpleasant, radiant if he had stepped in his dream into his childhood home. Sometimes he wouldn't wake up at all, but would howl and tremble, and Meyer, unless it was Goetz, had to get up, shake him, and squeeze his shoulders. You could hear similar screams in the third pavilion at night, although they were more often caused by water or urine pouring down between the boards of the bunk beds than they were by nightmares. Reality was bad enough. There was no need to dream something else, at least not at night. By day, you were lucky to be dreaming, because the conviction that everything was happening to you as if in a dream to someone else helped you get through the time from dawn to dusk. I am speaking as if time were a river, as if it were the Sava flowing by them, but they wouldn't have had the strength to wade across even a little stream. They crossed the Sava only in the truck driven by Goetz and Meyer, or shrouded in white sheets, stiff and dead, on stretchers carried by Jewish men across the frozen river, the ones who had been kept from the firing squad, and the Jewish women who hadn't died yet. So the camp prisoners not only fed themselves, they tended their dead themselves. And Goetz and Meyer might say that they even killed themselves, because they breathed poisonous fumes without being forced to, and the more they inhaled, the more paradoxically they exhaled of their own lives. Sounds absurd, I know, and chances are this never occurred to Goetz and Meyer, but this was a way they could shrug off responsibility and pile it on the shoulders of other people. Once you become part of the mechanism, you assume the same responsibility as every other part. Goetz and Meyer didn't know about that. The truck was theirs to drive, and they drove always smiling, even when the wind blew dust in their faces, and they couldn't care less what was going on in the back, whether the load was Jews or sugar beets. <laughs>